I'm Hemant Mehta. And I'm Jessica Blimke. And you're listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. You can now listen to all of our episodes and see show notes at FriendlyAtheistPodcast.com. By the way, we now have a merchandise shop on the website. So if you want your podcast swag, and you know you do, go to our website and click on the store tab. Kate Shellnut is an associate editor at Christianity Today magazine. She helps run their social media accounts, and she also edits their popular site for women, cleverly called Her Menunix. Before this, she worked as a web producer for the Houston Chronicle's religion site. She's a graduate of Northwestern University's Medill School of Journalism, where she earned her master's in reporting and online journalism. Kate, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. So I'm really excited to have you here because you live in this kind of, or you work in this hotbed of evangelicalism. So you can give us some perspective on what the heck is going on in this 2016 race, because at least for the Republicans, it seems like evangelicals are all over the place in terms of who they're supporting. And Donald Trump, who seems to be, you know, getting a lot of their support anyway, isn't even one of them. So what is going on there? Is this something that you saw coming? Is this something that's a surprise to you and people you work with? Yeah, I will admit that it's been a surprise to me. It's been a surprise um, to some of my colleagues because, of course, like the rest of America, when Trump entered the race, uh, I think a lot of us assumed it would be short-lived. When it became clear not only that he wasn't going away, but also that he was securing... um, a self-identified evangelical type of vote, we all started kind of asking, do you know anyone who's pro-Trump? Have you heard any pastors endorsing Trump? And so we kind of searched our circles, and everyone kind of knew, like, a brother-in-law, a cousin, someone distant, but we really couldn't look to our typical sources of, of the, the pastors, the organization leaders, the kind of thinkers who we usually say, okay, these are the guys who are influencing our, you know, our core evangelicals. And we didn't see those people going for Trump. So I think in some ways, we're just as confused as the rest uh, rest of you. Can you kind of, I mean, statistically, evangelicals are voting for Trump, if not as a block, but certainly some of them. Do you know what is appealing from a from a Christian standpoint, what's appealing about Trump? Because he seems very anti- Everything Every- that is evangelical. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I guess in some senses, I will say that I, I'm i confused. I, there was a new Pew numbers that have come out um, recently, the end of February, um, that have shown that, that one group of evangelicals that is less likely to vote for him are those who attend church weekly every Sunday. And <laughs> so I interact with those people. Uh, a lot uh, at work, and so so we might be in the minority, but in terms of broadly people who identify as evangelical, I think there is a sense of um, disenchantment with maybe the way things have been, a desire for change. I think there's a free-thinking spirit among evangelicals sometimes, and, and the idea of really wanting protection um, that, that, I mean, maybe that's something that both the motorcycle gangs and the college frat boys and, and some huh. church folks all share is this idea that we want a leader who, who posits and positions himself as very strong um, and has a sense of protection. And then this other idea of 
of not being politically correct. That yeah. for some evangelicals, this it, they feel like, oh, we've had to kind of hide or downplay our views um, in some ways. And here's a guy who, who seems to be saying, no, no, you can be as Christian as you want to be. You can be as outspoken as you want to be. And maybe there's a resonance there. Gotcha. Let me let me change subjects a little bit. Like I know Christianity Today, obviously an evangelical publication. The people in charge hold evangelical beliefs. Um, so a couple questions. One is, what are the contentious issues that you have to deal with as an editor? Uh, your staff has to deal with, and also like, how does the magazine deal with big issues? And I guess what I'm going with that. I don't know if uh, homosexuality, all the marriage equality stuff, is as big of an issue now as it used to be. But what goes on behind the scenes when you're thinking about running a certain article that might, you know, upset a lot of readers? What What's going on behind the scenes? And I will connect it. I'll start off by talking about politics as being one of those issues as a magazine, um, as a nonprofit, um, as as a uh, journalist enterprise, we don't endorse or um, or decry candidates that we like to represent a, a bunch of different views. And so um, I've been doing our politics coverage and invited um, and reached out to candidates on both sides of the campaign and was able to interview some Republican candidates. Um, and that we do really want to understand with Trump supporters, we want to hear their voices, kind of what are the concerns, what can we learn from them? So that's been one thing, especially this election season, that even though there are kind of different uh, waves of, of like mainstream unrest or interest or in certain candidates, that we, we do want to make sure that we're hearing everybody out, giving everyone a fair shake, um, and, and just reporting the news objectively. As far as some of these other issues kind of on their own, um, a lot of times with, when we see disagreements among Christians, that we like to emphasize that there's a core principle that we agree on, that we're both coming at it from the same biblical motivation or um, moral cause, but really it's just a, a strategy that's different. And so we kind of, you know, look for where, where the common ground is, we're both you know, trying to value the worth of an individual. We're both trying to, um, you know, reflect truth and goodness, but our strategies might be different on whatever the given topic. So, yeah, so trying to think about issues in that same way. Um, you'll also hear church organizations refer to kind of open-handed and closed-handed issues, an open-handed issue being we can disagree on this and still be in communion and go to church together and, consider one each other, another brother and sisters versus closed-handed issues where it's like, oh, this might be an issue that a church would split against, that this is, you know, part of the central part of our faith. So we're just trying not to make a bigger deal of things than they necessarily are, knowing that, um, that good-hearted people, well-intentioned people are going to fall on different sides of whatever it may be. So those are kind of two guiding principles I keep in my mind. So one thing I saw on your website, it might have been today, uh, at least as we're recording this, like you had an article from a Christian woman who was writing about uh, like why she masturbates or why that's not a bad thing, which I imagine 
like when you get that as an editor, it's like, oh man, I gotta, <laughs> I gotta tread lightly with this one because yeah. there are people who are gonna see just the headline or they're gonna read the article, and just the very nature of the topic is gonna make them, you know, not like the magazine anymore or something <laughs> like that. Like, what is your role in all of that? How do you handle that? Yeah, and um, you mentioned that I oversee our site by women, which is uh, where that article appeared, and so. I do feel like when we have women's voices on the site, we talk a lot about sexuality, um, about women's roles, and there are places where we might push the boundary a little bit. And so it's exciting for me to be involved in that. Um, We're actually doing a weekly series um, this year on uh, sex and sexuality. Um, In that case, uh, masturbation is one of those topics that I think people just appreciate that it's being brought up. And that if if someone is connecting back to biblical principles, trying to parse out what's happening, then it's okay to confess this is an area that I do, yeah, I do masturbate. And I've had struggles through this um, as a single woman um, who is trying to be celibate. Um, But I think people just like a space to talk about that. We talked about the female sex drive. Um, We're going to be talking about sex outside of marriage. sexy photography, uh, like we've done a, a bunch of stuff. And I think actually, I mean, sex sells even among evangelicals, people still click. Um, <laughs> and I like, I like that, uh, people are clicking and then it's actually kind of a deeper thought out thing. It's not a salacious right. thing. It's the idea that these conversations aren't necessarily happening, um, at least not being led by women. So that's a big passion of mine is that I do think the church overall is talking about sex more. The fact that we get to have um, women's voices uh, speaking into that conversation is great. Sure. I'm actually curious to to hear more about sort of the women's section. I've certainly come across plenty of articles from uh, Christian-type web sh- websites that tend to lean really hard into the the patriarchy um, regarding Mm. a woman's role or a wife's role to her husband and how women should treat their husbands or expect to be treated. Do you take a line regarding uh, marital roles and women, whether they're submissive or equals? Do you personally take a role and do you guys take a role as a a publication? So for our site, uh, we do welcome... uh, women who fall kind of on both sides of that. So the two code words, which are words that, to be honest, didn't mean much to me before I got involved in this uh, in this circle and then maybe mo- won't mean much outside of it. But egalitarian are people who see marriage as mutually submissive, husband and wife submit to one another. And complementarian would be um, where you see a husband as the head of the household and a wife um, would submit to him, and then the husband would commit to loving the wife as Christ loved the church. Mm-hmm. So we do have people who identify in kind of both of those uh, labels. We have people who eschew the labels altogether. And so um, as a kind of centrist organization, it's nice to to be able to invite both of those into this whole space. And we've even had co-written pieces from people on both sides of that Um and I think even people from the more conservative side, the complementarian side, speaking out and criticizing elements of a complementarian society or organizations to say, oh, there's actually a lot more leeway here for women than we might have been operating from. But yeah, so we welcome both of those viewpoints. And we also don't 
take a stance on female ordination. So some of our writers will come from churches that ordain women, and some will come from churches where women have other roles. Um, correct me if I'm wrong here. Uh, I don't know if the complementarianism or the other option uh, that uh, those that's not about to be settled anytime soon. That's that's an argument that's been around for a while. Like which one should you take? But I wonder if in your tenure uh, at the magazine, have you seen any issue where it seems like you know there were a few different sides, at least two sides to this particular story, and now it it you really don't see anyone defending a particular side of an issue. Hmm. I do think that we're seeing. Um... I wouldn't go as far as to say that there's not two sides or not a divide, but I think we're seeing the conversation evolve and shift a lot more over um, teens who are gay and transgender. I think that there's fewer and fewer pastors, churches, organizations, and people um, who would outright decry um, same-sex attraction as sinful um, or even to go through some of the conversion therapy that was popular um, in decades past. I think that there, even even some churches who um, who are not supportive of same-sex marriage and who would wish to see children um, identify as straight, are still showing a lot more kind of understanding, grace, love willingness to just come around to that and and a lot of those statistics are or a lot of those trends are related to um the number of evangelicals who have close relationships with people who are out and gay who have family members who are out and gay so you're just seeing i think the tone of that conversation really shift where some of the outright negativity um that would have happened maybe in the 90s before i was i was in these circles i think it's really softening and fading out I'm curious if you have comment sections, like either in the magazine or just generally on Facebook. Yes. <laughs> and, and are they contentious? Um, so we did about two years ago do away with comments um, That's smart. on the magazine. Oh, so, so and smart. I don't think anyone has missed them. <laughs> uh, so I think I was happy. Part of that was that so much is happening on Facebook and Twitter that if people want to give us feedback, if people want to make their comments known, we like, we can hear you out everywhere else. Do it on and your it, platforms. It, Don't do it on yeah, ours. Yeah. <laughs> and it added to the experience where people who say, Oh, I loved your article, but I can't stand the comments. And it's like, right. well, they're gone now. So that's good. <laughs> yeah. um, on some of the blogs and on the home site, we still have comments range, good and bad on Facebook. It's a real crazy it can be a crazy place i think for any any pages organizations news sites that operate on facebook so that is one place that um can be a little bit treacherous um we actually get a lot of commenters on facebook from other faiths who either have kind of hi sorry random (laughs) random things to say so some of them will be atheists we do get some atheists who will you know comment the same thing on every article um, a critique of an aspect of Christianity, yeah. or even Muslims. Um, huh. Most of them, like overseas, will say things like, oh, here's a, a prayer to Allah that I just wanted to share. So like kind of spam craziness that I have to go through and sort through. And then obviously people back and forth, um, praying for one another, 
uh, decrying one another. Passively, um, aggressively it, praying for people. Yeah. Do so you it's, get it's the... kind of a mixed bag of just like faithful uh, outcries so on do, our, our Facebook page. Do you guys get the same all caps Bible verses that I get in my comments? Yeah, yeah, Man. that's a good one. <laughs> like Christians so, are trying to convert I other Christians to Christianity. Yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> You're not Christian. I don't always know what th- those things have to do with all the articles. Right. Um, so. Right. Uh, but I, yeah, but I'm happy that we have, I think, a lot more of a constructive following on Twitter, um, and then hopefully people are having better conversations on their own Facebook page than some of these giant Facebook pages. I don't want to get you in trouble here. Do you get more? crazy comments from Christians who disagree with some article that was posted on the website or from atheists who just don't like anything you guys post? Oh, I think that, I don't think that there's that many atheists who speak it now. I think just by sheer number that there's a lot more Christians. And I would say also the Muslims outnumber the atheists just because I think, I don't know, we've got a lot of followers on Facebook from overseas, big international audience. So, um, from them too. Um, this is uh, a question I'm curious about because you're in this journalism world, you're in a magazine world, and that's one that's kind of undergoing all these shifts where people are trying to figure out how to get subscribers, how to pay for this. Like, how mm-hmm. do you keep all this going? What sort of conversations has the staff at Christianity Today had about, you know, how do you survive in this climate where maybe people aren't reading the magazines or subscribing to them or, you know, advertising on websites, I'm sure, is something you guys have dealt with, too. Uh, What sort of conversations are you having about that? Um, Well, I guess I I speak a lot more to kind of the digital and online side of things. So I know some of it has been um, the way we present our content online and some of the stuff that comes from the print magazine the print magazine is under a paywall except for kind of one day we we share it on the homepage. and we've seen some great uh, success with a paywall strategy which is something that when i was in a newspaper we were kind of all scared of um years ago but we've, we've seen that work a little bit um and we also just talk about um the nature of our content kind of who what kinds of stories are people interested in? And we get the um, the resources of the internet in terms of being able to track trends and popularity. And I think we can see a broader, get to know our readership in a broader way better rather than just maybe the people around our office or close to us. We can kind of see on a, a mega scale what evangelicals are talking about um, and trying to, to market to them and, and hit into some of those things in a more in-depth fashion. Another thing has been the idea that a magazine deliberately has a different tone than most of what people read on the blogosphere on the day-to-day news, that that actually that distinctness, I think, has turned into an advantage just as people have kind of returned to loving long reads and um, just anything that kind of takes a step back from the... um, the hot takes and the reaction to the reaction to the reaction. <laughs> so the fact that we have these resources to do international reporting, like we just sent um, a reporter to um, Greece and to Iraq. And the fact that, yeah, we have someone who was there who wrote thousands and thousands of words who talked to all of these people. And when you kind of compare that to the 200 paragraph story or the short blog post or the right. quick 
aggregation that it becomes clear like, oh, this is actually like a special thing on top of that. So just actually resisting um, getting into the rhythm of, of being as reactionary as the internet can be and reminding ourselves what our biggest asset is that we can offer. And that is that long, um, in-depth, and also just thoughtful. Like we, we have the advantage of time. We come out 10 issues a year, once a month with two double issues a year. And so we can take a week or two to process information and, uh, and present it in a different way. Um, but I think it's really helpful and refreshing. When you're uh, so, when you hear comments from from atheist readers and things like that, and just generally understanding the climate, what is there anything in particular that you wish atheists as a group understood about Christians as a group that we seem to be fund- fundamentally misunderstanding? I will say that I am always happy uh, because we do cover a lot of pop culture. We cover a lot of news that it's not unusual for someone to retweet us and, like I said, I'm behind our social media accounts and and say, I'm an atheist, I'm not a Christian, or I don't believe in God, but here's a good point. And I like the idea that, um, as you guys both know, like that there is a sense of morality, a sense of charity, a sense of common good that I think is a shared motivation. Um, so the fact that... Um, we're definitely coming from different worldviews, and I think a lot of evangelicals especially will say uh, the fact that I believe in Jesus mm-hmm. is shaping every single thing I do. But there's still, I think, a great um, sense of partnership and, like, learning from one another um, and reading promiscuously is, is helpful. It's nice for me to hear, like, well-developed secular philosophical arguments about things, Um I mean, I cannot deny how much I've been edified by uh, bloggers, writers, reporters, and journalists who write from that perspective. And I think um, that I think that there's some good to be learned from the best of what we do as well. We're just a mutual appreciation society. Uh, and I don't know if this sounds Pollyanna or idealistic, <laughs> but, um, but th- I guess that's what I would say. That I, I think that, um, like I said, I've learned a lot from people who have different point of view and I'd hope that that people would be able to to take the time if there's a subject that interests them and they happen to come across a link that just because the first part of the URL is ChristianityToday.com doesn't mean that it's going to be uh, something that will enrage you or um, that it should be dismissed outright. And I can attest to that too. Hard. I mean, I've read several articles on there where uh, it, it gave me some more insight into what the hell was going on yeah. uh, and it's something that it's hard to get from other parts of the internet, but when you have someone who lives in that world who can tell you, here's the issue and here's what the people are, uh, what the controversy is all about, that is that is really helpful. Um, you brought up pop culture, and I'm I have here's a two part question for you because on Twitter you tweet a lot about comedy, huge fan of yeah. uh, all of that stuff. The first question is just, uh, do you see any secular comedy that you think covers religion really well? Sure. I guess it depends on what you consider secular comedy. As in they're not Christian specific. That's all. Yeah. I don't follow anyone who labels themselves a Christian comic. um, Just because I don't think there are that many of them. (laughs) You're getting getting into my second Uh, question. (laughs) (laughs) But I, I 
I've always been into comedy. I have listened to Mark Maron since his early years. And so that's someone who I guess would technically be labeled a secular comedian, but I just see such a religious curiosity and thirst in his podcast, WTF, the fact that he always, he always brings (laughs) up a fate and says, wait a second, did you really believe in hell? Or like, (laughs) what did you confess the first time you went to confession? Or like, what age were you when like this thought calculated? And I think he just asks all the right questions. Like he's secretly a religion reporter who's like not willing, you know, wearing a comedian's uniform. He is someone who um, I admire and love listening to him and love hearing him talk about faith with other comedians. I like, I like um, Mike Birbiglia, who is an ex Catholic, does (laughs) tons of Catholic jokes. His new um, one man show is called thank God for jokes. And um, (laughs) is certainly a religious and funny um, but also comes out of a tradition that I just have to appreciate that it has even Catholic ties. I love um, John Mulaney and mm-hmm. Jimmy Fallon, who has um, Catholic background and who I think, I don't know, may or may not still identify with the faith. Um, Jim Gaffigan, too, has yeah. that huge Catholic background. Jim Gaffigan, background. absolutely. Jim Colbert's so Catholic, too. I think Colbert, that, yeah. I love seeing it come up in different ways in comedy, but it's certainly not a requirement that the comedians I like sure. uh are into that, but I just am tickled by it. I think uh, there's something great about laughing at ourselves. And, um, yeah. Um, I do want to go back to that other question, but have you had a chance to talk to Mark Marin or uh, Mark Mike Biglia about any of their, you know, faith backgrounds and how they talk about it? Because you would probably have access to them if you wanted to. Yeah, I've tried. So I don't know if this is like a bad confession of my <laughs> failure on, in public. Um, so I've met Mark Marin a couple of times and have tried to, through his publicist and stuff, get interviews with him. He's like on my dream interview with yeah. him and Stephen Colbert. Yeah. Um, so maybe one day. Uh, but it is something that I've done. I did a, I did do a piece about, um, like a reflection about Jimmy Fallon's comedy um, and the idea of like light versus dark comedy. I think that I have um, some more in me to say about religion and comedy themes. And um, like, yeah, if, if this were, if Christianity Today were, had a Kate section, we would definitely be on the comedy beat a lot more. Sure. Than we are. So let me get back to that other question, which is every time, uh, and you said this <laughs> yourself, like when you hear like a Christian comedian, quote unquote, why is that not funny to me? And I know I'm not the target audience here, but it seems like when they have Christian comedian stand-ups, they don't necessarily have mainstream success. When you see Christian movies, again, quote unquote, they don't all, I mean, they're not all God is dead. Uh, they don't all get that mainstream kind of crossover. What is it about that thing? Is it just, look, you're preaching to a, a very niche audience, as big as it might be, and it has no play beyond that? Or is it something about the message that just doesn't resonate beyond the Christian world? I don't know. Yeah, I have a couple of theories about this. Um, so one of them is just kind of the kinds of jobs that I think evangelicals are encouraged to pursue when they demonstrate different talents. I think that there are a ton of uh, people I have known in evangelical churches who are very funny, clever, quick-witted, thoughtful, and I have seen so many of them join the pastorate, usually as, like, youth pastors. Like, if you're funny, they're like, oh, you should just, like, work with the kids. And then eventually they become, like, a, like a, 
a preacher telling jokes in a sermon, which has become kind of a trope itself. Yeah. I don't think a lot of times when kids are funny growing up in the church that their parents say, oh, well, you should be on Saturday Night Live. I mean, maybe <laughs> more so now, but I just don't know that that's necessarily the instinct, uh, maybe because there's kind of a, a holdover or hesitancy over Hollywood being secular, um, maybe just because they channel their um, – their gifts and talents into the church body itself. Um, so they're Christians maybe, first and stand up second, maybe. That's really insightful. Yeah, yeah, I've never thought of that. Not you. Entertainment a priority when you're a Christian. Yeah. This is just a theory I have. Sure. Um, and certainly, certainly there are exceptions. The other hand is that I think that in creative fields, it's great when like nothing's off limits and people can be um, real open mm-hmm. about stuff and. I think at least historically in the church, there hasn't always been either a personal comfortability with doing that um, or maybe even the pressure of, okay, if I did open up on this sad thing, because we all know that like comedy is what pain plus time um, Mm -hmm. would, would this be reflect well on who I am on my faith? Um, like, it's just an appropriate thing to be discussing about. And that's a fair point. Like I can't imagine. I can't imagine like a uh, Louis C.K. monologue coming out of, you know, a, a Christian comedian or something like yeah. that. The closest thing that I can think of to a Christian comedian would be someone like Brian Regan, if you know that name. And I think it's almost just by coincidence that he gets booked all the time in Utah, he says, because just because he happens to be he's clean a, yeah, and kind of a family comic. guy. Yeah. Um, but he's someone who, none of his work is explicitly Christian, but he, he keeps it PG, I think, more than anyone that I listen to regularly. Um, but yeah, so there is this thing that there's a darkness and a pain that that's part of the comedy story. Um, and, of course, there's also, yes, sex and cussing can right. be things, but I don't know that that's a requirement as much. So... I mean, there's got to be a niche. Be. If yeah. there was a good comedian, yeah. uh, I mean, there's got to be a way to talk about, you know, sex, drugs, whatever, within a Christian context. That Dane Cook I, is Christian. You guys can have him. Isn't he I mean, he talks about, yeah, he's like a Catholic as well. Yeah. But uh, there's got to be a way for someone to be able to talk about sex in a way that isn't, you know, not family friendly that could generate laughs. I just haven't heard it. And yeah. believe me, I would totally listen to it if I could find someone who's really good. Yeah, and like I said, I just don't know. I wonder if just the ambition isn't isn't there, that, that if you did have that talent or skill, yeah, would your goal be to have mainstream fame? Um, but yeah, I've, I've heard a lot of speakers who I think are funny comedians. And then there are guys, I think, on Twitter and in the blogosphere who are who have kind of like carved out that niche. Someone like John Acuff, who's a Christian author um, and did the stuff Christians like right. um, blog and meme. He's really funny and quick-witted in person. Um, Sammy Rhodes is a friend of his, another guy in that sphere. And then there are some women bloggers. This woman, Jen Hatmaker, is a Christian speaker, a mommy blogger type, and is just is laugh out loud funny. You know so what's sad? Who are doing stuff. I think a bunch of our listeners have no idea who you're talking about, and I know who you're talking about because I follow this stuff, and it's weird to me that I follow <laughs> yeah. this stuff. So, 
Can you just take my word for it that those three people are Christian bloggers and authors <laughs> of levels of fame, of various levels of right. fame? That's pretty much all you yeah, need to know. Like lifestyle bloggers uh, and authors of kind of inspirational type of books. Um, yeah. So I'm thinking about. Yeah, there are funny people out there. I'm thinking about now this whole religion and comedy thing because I, I, I think you're absolutely right, Kate. And it made me think of like kind of the extreme of it. Uh, I think there is something about some sects of Christianity who it feels like you always have to keep a pleasant face. Like, I'm thinking the extreme is, like, Mormon women who stay sweet. They have to stay sweet. They always have to be, like, put on a happy face, put on a smiling face. And so much of comedy comes from, like, self-deprecation and, and, <laughs> and darkness and things like that. I wonder if that's that the whole thing. I've never understood why... I have seen a couple like Christian comedians yeah, no, in I'm... person live because I go to church Cause events have... too. Because why not? But that's God. the thing. They the the stories they tell are the happy stories, or at least they have a happy ending if they didn't right. start out that way. And a lot of the comedians that I tend to find funny don't end stories. Yeah, with I go a very to a lot, of, a lot of open mics, and it's a lot of like twenty five year old broke white guys just right. like complaining <laughs> about their lives, right? Which is fair. Interesting, interesting, interesting. And then. But I thought about it. I mean, on the other hand, if you're if you're not someone who believes that um, that for your faith to be true or for God to be real, that you have to be, um, you know, hashtag blessed. That like <laughs> that that suffering does happen, pain is real, and none of those things um, deny the reality of God. Which I think, a right? Lot there's of nothing. They're becoming. There's nothing stopping them from top, talking about it. Yeah, about that. And so, on the other hand, if we see laughter, right, as like a, a letdown of your defenses, like I don't have to pretend anymore, um, we are comfortable, like biologically, I think evolutionarily, that that's how laughter came about, is that uh, you are not a threat to me, um, and I'm not a threat to you, so we can laugh together. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a position of vulnerability. So I do think that for me at least, there's something deeply related to my faith that, that if I know that, um, my future is secure, um, that my destiny is secure in Christ, that, um, that I know that I'm affirmed by God already, then like, I don't have to put up airs for anything. I can be laughing all the time. I can be completely vulnerable and open. So I think that there is something in here that should be feeding into a comedy world. I don't know why it's not necessarily already, but I think that that we certainly have the freedom to be in that space. Um, when you find I'd that comedian, please write about it. Yeah. <laughs> um, I have one last question for you, which is, you know, I've read some of the interviews you guys have had uh, that you personally have had with like Fiorina and Ben Carson. And when you go into interviews uh, on Christianity Today with them, they, I mean, you guys really go into depth about their faith and what they believe. And it goes so much beyond the, the little sound bites they give at the debates. And I wonder, you know, be, is that, that's one example, but what sort of things can a Christian publication or any niche publication like that bring to the table that, say, mm-hmm. the New York Times or CNN could not do? What do you guys bring to the table that they can't? Specifically for the political candidates? Or or any subject, really. Yeah, I think that, and this even goes back to what I was saying about Mark Maron, that I think that anyone who is a celebrity, um, be they a politician or just a famous name, that we, um, we treat them, like, not as people, but, right, just as their name, like, that they are 
somehow otherworldly or non-human. And I see these really superficial efforts to make them look human. So things like the Us Weekly, um, like, Ben Affleck buys groceries, too. He's just like us. <laughs> That's silly. I think that what makes people human is truly, like, what they believe at their core. And I think the more that people are um, questioned and prodded and you just even given the opportunity to speak to, you know, what does that, like, actually mean for you as a person living your life, the fact that you um, believe or don't believe in a certain thing, ascribe to a certain faith, um, belong to this kind of church. How is that lived out? Um, what does that mean for you as a person? That when we get to fill in those details about a person, I think it makes them human in a way um, that just the facts or kind of just a picture or just the headlines don't. And I think it makes you empathize with people more, um, see them as more well-rounded, um, and also relate well that, okay, this person has genuine motivations from X, Y, and Z, um, and it's not just a figurehead of something. So to, to me, there's something uh, relatable, and it's even, a, to me, a sign of respect of valuing an individual by letting them speak to, like, what are real, um, real things that matter versus... Uh, yeah, versus just what's your position on this and this, or um, were you at the grocery store yesterday? I guess. Yeah, yeah. Just <laughs> I, a, I, and, I think the fullness and roundness to someone in a respectful way. And I think you know what, piggybacking on that, I think before uh, pre- uh, President Obama was even a senator, uh, maybe it was Manya uh, Brashear. Uh, I hope I'm saying her name right, but at the Chicago Tribune. But I, I think she interviewed him specifically about what he believed about his faith. Um, and it's one of those articles that, you know, you never would see today because he doesn't talk that way. But at the time, it's like, well, nothing's holding him back. So we could talk about his faith openly. And the responses he gave about how he's a Christian, what he believes in, it's it's hard to believe you could read that and then hear someone question him on his faith when it's like, no, he, he really does believe that stuff because he wouldn't have talked that way at that time if he didn't actually believe this. And yeah, you get an insight uh, from people like you, from those reporters that know that world that you may not get in like a traditional secular quote unquote publication. Um, and he is someone who we've interviewed for CT during his, uh, his first election um, back in 2007. So um, we don't cover politics all too often, just a play by play all the time, but election years, we like to have an interview with the presidential candidate, the person who we hope that by the time the, the election's over, that we've been able to talk to the person who becomes president mm-hmm. because we think it's important for our readers um, to hear their story and know their background. So yeah, I and get them on the record. The Democratic about... candidates. I hope that I, I get the chance to talk with um, Bernie Sanders or Hillary Clinton as well, um, and maybe Trump too. I have uh, emails out to his people. So we do hope <laughs> that, that be... whoever the candidate ends up being, <laughs> that we're able to, um, whoever the president ends up being, that we're able to provide um, that sense, let them say in their own words kind of what their background and story is and how much that matters to them as, a, as an individual and then also to them as a politician. That interview with Trump would be fascinating. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> Um, Thank you so much, Kate. I really appreciate it. We'll have links to Christianity Today and Hermeneutics uh, in the notes for this show. Uh, Thanks again. Thank you. It was great.
Thanks for listening to the podcast for FriendlyAtheist.com. This episode was taped at Cinnamon Sound Studios in Aurora, Illinois, and the music was written and performed by Brad Chagdis. If you like what you're hearing, please consider making a contribution at Patreon.com slash Hemant. That's He-Man T. We appreciate your support. I'm Hemant Mehta. And I'm Jessica Blumke. We hope you'll join us next time. Thank you.